first time this fellow went fishing for salmon in the Shannon, he got a fish of, I think, 39 pounds, which he then sold to a local fishmonger at two shillings the pound. His best day was 12 salmon. There was one of 48 and a half pounds. There were three between 30 and 35 pounds, and the rest were good fish, and the only small fish was one of 12 pounds. Hello and welcome to the Ireland on the Fly podcast about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland. And on this week's show we have, after a long hiatus, another book club episode, this time focusing on O'Gorman and the practice of angling from 1845. Who was O'Gorman, many of you may be asking? Well, in many ways he was our Isaac Walton, albeit a lot better. And this week's guest is Patrick Gageby, fly angler, barrister, and who co-wrote the introduction to a reissued version of O'Gorman's book and who will explain all. But first, Tom, before we hear from Patrick, I know you're a big fan of O'Gorman's. Yeah, Commander. Yeah, I've, um, I mentioned there when we were chatting to Patrick, I got the book 25 years ago, the, the reissued one, and I just fell for it straight away for a lot of reasons, and you'll hear it in the particularly with regards to the flies. But uh, yeah, it just really caught me. And I know when I was chatting to you, when you read it first, funny, it didn't grab you as much first, and then it's only when you're looking back at it, there are some parts of it, so it's like anything. Uh, you know, I I just really took to it, and I I suppose um I'm rereading it and going back over it. It's it's just something that I'm completely fascinated by. Um, like yourself, like I I have a huge love of history, right? And I have a love of angling history as well. But and quite a lot of the stuff that he writes about is in my neck of the woods as well. So the whole thing coupled, you know, just I was I was always going to fall for it. Always going to fall for it. And and in fairness, actually, it was only after even doing this episode. And revisiting the book, uh, and this is why we are recommending it for people who are listening, who are interested. You know, this is about fly fishing in Ireland, the history, the culture, the practice of fly fishing in Ireland. Is it was written by an Irishman, as um, Patrick Gageby points out. It was eighteen forty five when it came out. If you want a real insight into the incredible fishing that was available around the yeah. country, you know, it's in two volumes. He covers Connemara, he covers Munster, he covers Leinster, trout, salmon. You just get like he talks and Patrick mentions this, you know, a 48 pound salmon he caught. Uh, mm. His best day of salmon fishing was 12 fish to 335 pounds or something <laughs> like yeah. the halcyon days, you know. And if you want, and, mm. but it was written by an Irishman. You get that insight into Irish life and Irish culture as he travels around the country. Like, and again, that's why we mentioned Walton. You know, people revere Walton as the, you know, the complete angler as the kind of, you know, the, the foundation text for fly fishing. But for Irish fly fishing, I think maybe, well, uh, I think maybe um, O'Gorman's book should be the the starting point. Do you think, Tom? Oh, definitely. I really do. I mean, like, as we say, like, he's the first Irish angler to write, you know, uh, a, you know, a complete work on angling, you know. And 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 I say as well, like some of the stuff that we discussed it there with Patrick, some of his advice is so pertinent today. You know, you go through the what he writes about. You know, I mean, right, all right, a lot of the technical stuff in the hundred and seventy years, whatever it is now, like uh, has changed. But you know, a lot of the other advice is still held true. I mentioned it there. He says with the salmon, you know, do not strike straight away. <laughs> let the fish let the fish disappear down. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's still true today, and sometimes I wish I'd listened to it. <laughs> sometimes today, but you know, as you said, I think I think let's you know we'll we'll start the campaign. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, O'Gorman. Who needs uh, Walton and Cotton yeah. from Irish fly fishing? You know, it might be a bit later, but you know, it was yeah. still uh, it's it's worth remembering um, where we came from. I think it is. Yeah. Now we mentioned it there now, and if you're like me. This was a bit like you, like the physical feeling of a book. Yeah, I mean, like I'd always go for that. Um, so it's, it's not the cheapest. Even tried to get um, the classic uh, fly fishers library edition because that hasn't been reprinted or anything. But you can get it online. So if you want to see it, now, go to o- yeah, the same. openlibrary.org. Yeah, so you can you know so you can you can breeze through it and you know go through it that way. So like you don't have to. You don't, if you really want to see some of the stuff that's in it, you know, you don't have to take out a second mortgage to get a first edition. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, <laughs> it might it might give you a taste. Get the PDF downloaded, put it, put it onto your Kindle, whatever reading device. Oh, that's it, yeah. You know? No, I have to say, like, for old books, I just, something about it, I just like physical feel of reading them, but, you know, 
So, and uh, if you did enjoy it or if you have any thoughts on it do let us know and actually if there's any other yeah. books we are going to be covering a lot more books as well in our book club episodes I know they're kind of irregular at the moment because you know we do get caught up in the whole fly fishing season and yeah. there's a lot of stuff coming up but it's nice to dip in and out of these episodes just to remind yourself of the culture and the history it is actually you know you you said it there I hadn't realised but it was a fair old hiatus for our last one you know and so yeah and really interesting to do and we often say that I mean we know our listenership is broad and everything. Some people, it's not, it's not everybody's cup of tea, but there are, there's a core guys and girls out there that, you know, like the angling uh, literature side of things. So, you know, good, good for all you guys. As well. So for all 10 of you that are, um, yeah. stick with us, the rest of you. <laughs> I, come on. It's gotta be 11. <laughs> Rising tide lift all boats eventually. Yeah, that's what I say, yeah. But look, let's get back to this week's guest anyway, Patrick Gageby, who first gives us the background to the book and the author himself. Uh, O'Gorman's book was first published, I think, in um, 45 or 46, 1845 or 46. And then there was a second edition, but I don't think there was any additions to it about 10 years later, in fact, in the year that he died. So he's an interesting fellow because he's um, he's born about 1765. Um, he died about 90, 90 years later. He was from a relatively prosperous uh, uh, Clare family with a bit of land and I think some merchant connections. He seems to have been um, a person of some importance in uh, what's called the Backlane Parliament, in other words, which was a part of a group uh, advocating for Catholic rights in 1792 or so, when Wolf Tone was um, uh, the secretary to that. I can't quite work out um, if it's important at all uh, what his uh, religion was. Um, and he leaves a number of clues in the book. Uh, he's got a wonderful um, account towards the end of the book of traveling to Connemara for the first time, I think, and staying in Kilroy's Hotel yeah. in um, Galway and meeting there a Methodist preacher whom he says he almost converted to the ancient faith. <laughs> now, um, this may say uh, uh, um, a, a lot about O'Gorman or nothing of the Methodist minister. But he, he, he was also, when he, when he died, um, he was a member of a, a, a local Masonic lodge. So I, I haven't really figured that out. And he was also very friendly with the Plunkets, the Plunkets mm. were a big church and law family. They owned a vast estate in Tourmacady, um, uh, bits and pieces of which are, are still there. And they also rented, I think, Delphi Lodge from Lord Sligo or the Earl of Sligo or, or whatever his title is. So uh, I'm just not sure about uh, that sort of stuff. But um, leaving aside religion and all that sort of stuff, the reason why I think... Um, it's a great book, uh, is firstly, he actually was really very interested in uh, the mechanics of fishing. Mm. That is to say, he was, um, uh, you know, he gave very practical instruction on the type of rod one should have. So, for instance, the poor fools in the Blackwater uh, fished with rods that were 25 plus feet, which he yeah. thought was ridiculous when everyone else on the Shannon only used rods of, I think, about uh, uh, 16 to 20 feet. And he gave uh, exact descriptions of what your rod should be made of. Uh, there should be hickory, lancewood, and the butt, I think, of crag ash, which I'm presuming is all the stunted ash from the crags of the burn, but I could be wrong. Um, in that connection... Uh, I, I think this is basically the original version of the, uh, is it the Greenheart rod they used to call them in the 19th century? Yeah, is that, is that yeah. it? Yeah. And uh, I have only once uh, used the Greenheart rod. I'm old, but not that old. <laughs> and the circumstances were I wanted to learn how to cast a salmon uh, rod. 
And what else should I do but find J.R. Harris, the um, author of An Angler's Entomology, who agreed to give me lessons out in the Phoenix Park. Uh, on this occasion, there were many um, odd remarks and people passing by. At the end of it, uh, I stood him a drink, or possibly two, in a local pub by Sarah Bridge, where within 10 minutes he had found that the man sitting next to him knew all about salmon, had fished all his life on the Liffey, mainly with, I think, a stroke call, a gaff, and possibly a net, and had winkled out uh, <laughs> some secrets from him. Now, apart from that digression, therefore, why is the book good? Well, firstly, there's a lot of interesting social history in it. Um, and he certainly, uh, by and large, seems to have fished by the leave of the uh, uh, gentry. Uh, the Plunkets were, were major gentry. And also of um, uh, an amount of the people around uh, Clare where there was fantastic trout fishing, which I don't think anybody would recognize now. But what are the standouts? Well, I, I read this book first about 35 years ago. And then Kevin McKenna and myself um, wrote an, an introduction to the republication of it um, by the Fly Fishers Classic Library. And Kevin did all the research, which you will find in the two or three pages of the um, introduction. But what are, what are the standouts? I suppose it's what's gone. I mean, let's face it. The first time this fellow went uh, um, uh, uh, fishing for salmon in the Shannon, he got a fish of, I think, £39, which he then sold to a local fishmonger at two shillings the pound. Mm. His best day was 12 salmon. Um, there was one of £48.5. There were three between 30 and £35. And the rest were good fish. And the only small fish was one of £12. Oh um, I think that makes nearly 300 weight of salmon. And he indicates that the, that the bag was so heavy, they had to actually put the fish in a boat and move down to a salmon weir, filch the basket from the King's Gap, and thus uh, ferry home their, um, their uh, fish. So um, that's my favourite bit, um, as it were. I think of the two volumes, the first volume is much the better. Um, it's got a lot of... Uh, Interesting instruction. Uh, it tells you how to make the flies, and you can still make the flies in those particular way, except uh, I think for none of them you have to have both donkey fur and pig fur. Uh, I'm mm. sure we could, uh, we, we could arrange that for anybody that wanted it. It's a really interesting read. And he did have a couple of foibles. In fact, he had an awful lot of foibles. Yeah. He didn't believe in multiplier reels. That uh, comes across had, fairly uh, strongly. Yes, indeed. Yeah, really uh, he, does. I, yeah. yeah, I think he denounces them as being based on vicious principles. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> now, I've, I've spoken too long and digressed too long. So well, it's very interesting you say that. Funny, you picked up on the salmon one there. But one of the times, and it is very true, Patrick, talking about times past, but one of the times that he's up staying with the Plunkets and he travels between Tormikidi and Delphi. Uh, for the time he was there, now, he doesn't give the amount of days, but he does give the total of their catch, was, which is 1,700 trout. Yes. And I think it was that it was uh, 30, 35 salmon. The salmon weren't big, yep. only to 10 and a half pounds. Yeah. Yep. I agree with you totally. It kind of wanes off in the second volume. It, you know, it really does. I think you're right. The, it gets into the nitty gritty and some of the best stuff is in the first volume. But and I, I'd forgotten this chapter. I found a chapter only the last couple of days. And it's a very small chapter. I, tell, I think it tells a lot about him as well. It's when he goes to Currafin and he stays in Sweeney's. And oh, yes. Owner, this is yes, the story yes. where, they get, <laughs> Absolutely. where they get atrociously <laughs> drunk. Hammered. In the, in, <laughs> yes. And where it starts out with a very good bottle of port from the yeah. owner of the hotel. And then it moves on to half gallons of punch. <laughs> yeah, punch. Yeah. And then there is, yeah, and then there's a row with a military man. And uh, <laughs> O'Gorman, of course, I think had a military history. And yeah. he was very fond of gentlemen of the law and gentlemen of the army. He considered that 
the best anglers were drawn from uh, either of those. Except that, yeah. And unfortunately, what they did was in the uh, sort of um, uh, duel of honour, which was conducted inside the hotel, they upset a table upon which the the, um, wife of the proprietor had set out her best china for the fair, which is to be the following day, I think, in Ennis. And they broke and smashed every single one of those. And uh, I I think they were slightly ashamed of that. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, the the military guy said he'd order somebody to go into Ennis and knock on the doors at this hour of the morning to make sure there was enough teapots for the fair. Yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah, it was it was half a gallon of punch, and I think they all got around of it, and there was about five of them. Oh yeah, but there was many half gallons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the good but, life. And also as well, while we're on the subject of that, he also says when he's in Delphi, um, did not want porter for breakfast, yes. but it was pushed on them. That's right. Yeah. Yes. But he was also a man who um, thought that when was fishing when when one was fishing. Um, one should always have a good dram bottle with one. Well, but, well, um, some things never change. Yeah, well, you know, there's a wonderful <laughs> story there where he uh, fell into the um, Blackwater, was swept down, uh, it sounds like, uh, quite a bit of the river, but he was still attached to the salmon that had pulled him in. Yeah. So yeah. he um, managed to swim towards the um, bank the first thing he did was he threw the salmon up, then he threw the rod, then he threw the gaff, and then he climbed out himself. Yeah. That's proper order. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, needed to be tough in those days. Yeah, you can really sense that because he falls in as well. Um, he pra- the bit where he practices stroke hauling for the first time. Yes. Uh, yes. On, on, on the Shannon. And, th- and this is great for guides or gillies. I'm sticking up. Um, his, his cop man, as he called him, Keen. Well, didn't yeah. want to do it. Now, this was yeah. the first, and as it transpired, the only time he ever tried stroke hauling, right? And yeah. he gave such a whack on the stroke haul, right, that on hitting the fish, he fell out, right? And yeah. he had to be pulled in by Keane. But the thing is, they reckon he reckons uh, that Keane shouts out, it's a kingfish. Yes. Yeah, and he reckons it could have been a sturgeon. Yeah, there is some minor history of big sturgeon in mm. in Ireland, but more so actually in Wales. And I think it was either the Towie or the Teffy. Yeah. Even into the early 20th century, there was very occasionally a very large fish uh, um, was found. And of course, they were a king's fish. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so they the, had to be handed over to king straight away or something. Yes. Didn't they? Yeah, Something like that. As soon yeah. as they were caught. Mm. Yeah, no, but that was but actually and from my view, what happened, what got me really interested in the book, Patrick, was because uh, I bought a, an edition um of the classic fly fisher library when it came out. And I remember the introduction that yourself and Kevin did. I was fascinated by yeah. the whole thing. One thing that really got me, and it's a little story I always tell, but you in that edition, there was a plate at the front of six flies. They were yes. tied for O'Gorman in 1791 by Corny Gorman. Yes. And, um, do, do you know where where were they kept or where did they come about from? Or you know, I think I think they must have been from um, from Kevin. Um, yeah. Uh, I think I probably saw them in the flesh, but uh, yeah. uh, Kevin. Kevin um, w- was very interested in angling and knew a-, a lot more about the literature than I did. And um, uh, I was only just thinking the same thing, uh, looking at it and saying, uh, how do fishing flies <laughs> survive for <laughs> yeah. 230 years or so? Yeah. Or 200 years was that. Yeah. I thought, yeah, and they're very beautiful, aren't they? They're beautiful. But my here's my story about this. I don't know if I've told you, Dark. I had a fly on Loch Mass. They used really killing. I invented it myself. I I did really well with it. I remember one day in the heat in the World Cup, I did really well. I had four fish, and three of them were in that fly. And I was calling it okay, 
I was calling it my doc special. Of course I was. Yep. And I was going to, yep, this is grand. And basically, I had done this to copy a Welshman's button. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and and basically what it was done, it was kind of like Claret and Mallard, but it was more of a cinnamon body. But I put a yellow button on it. And mm-hmm. I had a nice partridge hack on it. it was, I hadn't seen anything else like it, and it really worked for me. When I got a copy of that book, and I opened the plate, yeah, I looked, and there, in the bottom left-hand corner, was my fly. That's it. Exactly. Genius. You're both genius. <laughs> Nothing original well, like, these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's really what I'm trained. Like Doc Special out the window, and it's actually it's the Dromore fly that he talks about. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Although, as much as I can see. You see, if you look into it, and he talks about the Dromore fly, kind of changes it a bit. It's not always the exact same. He changes mm. it for salmon to trout. Yeah. And the one he's saying, it's a green butt. But if you look at the picture, none of the flies have a green butt, and they have more of a yellow butt. Now, maybe it's faded, and maybe I could steal the whole title that I did invent this fly, <laughs> but I think not. <laughs> Do we know um, how was the book received when it was published? Do you know, I don't actually know um i came ac- i came across very few references to it and i n- think only saw it once in a bookshop at a time before there were any reprints mm. um and in it's not referenced much in um irish books that followed it but I suppose one of the reasons why it is an interesting book is that it's a book by um, uh, an Irishman, mm. um, as opposed to being one of the wandering Englishmen um, who um, uh, wrote so many um, tour books in Ireland and never failed to comment on the ignorance of everybody around them, the dirt and the need for improvement, You know, uh, none of which, it appears, fell on fertile um, ground so he's I think he it's because he's a sort of son of the soil as it were although I I don't think he ever dug it himself I think he he was doing quite nicely if you look at the picture of him uh, at the front of the Mm. book he's uh, wearing a gentleman's um, uh, attire but uh, you know, I don't find it referenced really, you know, the, maybe there's 20 books after it, uh, bring us right up to the middle of the 20th century. And I, I really don't see any great cognizance of it. Yeah, what, mm. like, can we put our finger on that or? Yeah, it's it, it's hard to know. See, so many of the books are about excursions, simply excursions into the country. And uh, some places get very uh, popular. Um, But also there was a large amount of fishing that simply wasn't accessible um, unless you had the walk-on from somebody with a bit of money. Mm. So, for instance, you know, if if you move sort of forward, um, I don't know, do you know a book called Irish Sport of Yesterday by Major A.W. Long? No. I don't know that one, no. Yeah, it's it's published about 1910 with some of his own photographs. And he rented uh, a house on the Killery, uh, just opposite Bundaraha, yeah. uh, the piers Bundaraha, and fished the Erif and the rivers around there, and I think possibly up the old of angling literature, except one book, which is Wild Sports of the West. Yeah, and Wild Sports of the West is written by uh, by William by Hamilton Maxwell, Maxwell, who is a, a drinker, a carouser, likewise loves the army, and he's also in holy orders. But he spends most of his time hunting, shooting, and fishing. Mm-hmm. And that book goes. Uh, uh, it's first published in eighteen thirty-two, and that book goes through a number of editions, and was still being published right into the 1920s and 30s. So you can buy like a cheap edition from Talbot Press and things like that. And you could even, there was a translation into Irish in the early mm. 1900s. Yeah. Wow. It was, yeah. I came across a copy of it once. But it's very interesting. Yeah, you look at that. But yes, um, 
and I got a chance to read a lot of the older books now. And to be honest with you, I mean, his attention to detail on tackle is very good. Like, it is a really good how-to-do book in the chapters that he's not talking about fishing or drinking, should we say, you know? I mean, he pays attention to detail how to make up your cast with a, a three-stop um, uh, connection. For, uh, yeah, from your silk line to your casting line, which is the, you know, your flies. Gut. He calls, yeah, to your gut. It's interesting. He calls um, uh, where, what your flies is on, like your, your tip of material, he calls it your casting yeah, the flies are on, and then yeah, um, the silk line, and all of that. And he's very good about all of that. So, like you see, like Wild Sports of the West is pays very little of that. It's more about stories, you know. Yes. There isn't, you know, there isn't much in that. And then the other ones I've I, I've been lucky enough to read a couple of the other ones by the English authors, and I think it really comes across with with um with O'Gorman. Like O'Gorman names the guides, names the gillies. Yeah, names them by name. He's, but you know, he you can tell that there's there's something there. Now he does use the word peasants in one of the thing, or right, yes. when he's given out about something. So yes, yeah, and he's definitely wealthy. He's, somebody I met a guy, fellow from Menace once who, who, who had researched this and had researched the fact that uh, O'Gorman um, is probably related to Boris Johnson, but that's that's further down the line. Uh, apparently, um, but uh, the O'Gorman's great grand O'Gorman's grandfather. Would have been Boris Johnson's seventh great grandparent, something okay. like that. But I was chatting to Declan uh, about it. He was great. But what he what he said to me, like, and he definitely was wealthy. What he was left was sixteen hundred pounds a year, and mm. that was when his father died in seventeen. Uh, it, that was in the late seventeen hundreds. Mm. Uh, that, that was a huge sum of money. So he he was wealthy. You did a decent stuff. Yeah. And actually, I wanted to ask you, because when I read it, I have to say, I really enjoyed the voice to it. You know, he's kind of, not flippant, but he, you know, he enjoys life, you know, and mm. it did irk me though, and I've said this to Tom before, it was, I, I just, you pick up that condescension to the peasantry. Yes. Which... Well, you, well it, you would be like that if you were a gentleman. Yeah, but like, I, if I was reading it, and if it was written by an English major or a visiting English, like as you mentioned, mm. Patrick, it just irks me that I was reading this from an Irishman, but you're, like I can understand, yes, you're a gentleman, so you're very much of not necessarily Anglo-Irish stock, but you know, mm. <laughs> your, your leanings might be to a certain way. And this is where I was very interested in when you look at his career. And I might, we might just delve a little bit into this. He joined the yeomanry, isn't that right, in the the late 1790s. So what I'm asking, and then he, he opposed, wasn't it, O'Connell's um, uh, bid, was it during one of the elections in the 1800s, was that right? What I, I suppose, yeah, well, O'Connell ran in, in Clare, yeah. Yeah, and he opposed O'Connell's um, candidacy there, whereas his brother was very involved on the, for the United Irishman. Is that Purcell O'Gorman? Or? Yeah, Nicholas yeah. Purcell. So I, yeah. Purcell uh, I suppose what I was trying to, maybe I was trying to read too much in it was that in the sense of when he was talking about the, the, the peasantry and maybe kind of looking down his nose at them, hmm. I was wondering, did he was there some kind of change that he went, you know, he went one way, his brother went the other, and that this is hmm. reflected through the political time and then hmm. also then in the book? Yeah, but don't forget that um, Nicholas Purcell O'Gorman, he was an MP, wasn't he? Mm. Um, I mean, he would have been elected by approximately two or 300 people, and none of them were, pe <laughs> no peasant had a vote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. And can I just point out, there is an element of rivalry between Clare and Tipperary in this, I think, because, you know, there's the famous Irish saying that, of course, in the old days in Ireland, uh, before the English came, I'm assuming is implicit in that. Um, a a virgin with a with a, a bag full of gold could walk from Malinhead to the tip of Kerry without fear of molestation of her fortune or her virtue. And he added, except in Tipperary. <laughs> yes. I am not going to, uh, as I live in Tipperary, I am a dub living in Tipperary. I am not going to uh, add any further to that. No. <laughs> I never yeah, heard that. I, 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 suppose, I suppose what you're saying there, Dar, but then how many contemporary reports do we have, have of, let's say, 
Irish people from that era that would be very well off. You know, was it a fact that, you know, they still, you know, once they were wealthy like that, you know, it was, it was probably a class yeah. society. No, hundred percent. Yeah. No, yeah. look, look, I, I totally agree with you. You know, you know, he came from a certain class, you know, you would have had a certain um, uh, view on the peasantry to that. And especially, I suppose, if you're involved in fly fishing, fishing for salmon, it puts you in a certain elite anyway. No matter, and then yeah. coupled to that with the money. Um, and it, I suppose it is interesting that he didn't become as involved in politics as his brother did. You know, he was more into the country lifestyle. Yeah, and it's funny, though, that you say that as well, Gareth, because I, I suppose, and it's probably because I read um, what you were saying as well there, Patrick, of, you know, the other bo- the other books that were by the travelling, visiting Angle and, you know, wanted the, the improvement to be brought upon Ireland and uh, Toto, the dirt mm. and the squalor. See, I don't see that with, with in McCormick's book, and I see him talking, you know, naming the guy, naming the gillies, naming them, yeah. talking to them, and naming Corny O'Gorman, who lived, I don't think Corny Gorman lived very well either. Um, no. And so, he died in the cholera epidemic yeah, in 1832 yeah. in Ennis, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, and he must have um, been quite a good age. Yeah, he must have been, because he was tying the flies in 1791. So that's, yeah. you know, well well at 40 years afterwards. So, you know, I, in comparison, let's say, to let's say the visiting anglers, I really don't see it, you know. He, he speaks he speaks quite well of of guy uh, of the, the the gillies you know um, yeah i I'd, I'd really like to see a book written by corny gorman if you ever yeah that, oh that would be fantastic yeah and of course to remember that there would have been so much irish particularly in claire uh, and that's a i mean i'm digre- i'm digressing here as well i wonder did he have irish because there is one thing in the book where he's talking about um uh, oh yeah, this is when he's giving advice, which is once again he says never wear gloves, right? He says, gloves mm. should not be worn when fishing, which I agree with totally. Like a lot of his advice, uh, as advice, is still very pertinent today. Like, and he says, you know, don't strike a salmon too quick, which is very yep. good. Didn't have to go down. He says, don't wear gloves. And what is it? Uh, yeah, a muffled cat. A muffled cat catches no mice, right? And he I then says heard. it's slightly ruder in the Irish. Yeah, he does. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I was just wondering then, would he spoken Irish? But as you say, Irish was quite rampant, uh, not rampant, well-spoken throughout clear though. Yeah, I don't um, get the idea that, um, you know, if you had to have intercourse with people for uh, business, even if it was just your tenantry, you wouldn't know what they were saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, to the extent that uh, I, I, I think the ability of people who were uh, uh, above the rank of the peasantry to understand what was being said w- w- was probably uh, quite normal. Yeah, you know. But um, it's an interesting thing that really. There isn't a word of Irish in it, and nobody talks about the language, and yet yeah, that's... no, it doesn't. That's and that's the only mention of it in in the whole book that I, yeah. that I came across. Yeah, yeah, uh, and um, I, I thought it was good, I, and I, I'm going to try and find out what the Irish Sean 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 O'Connor for that is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, I don't know if we know this as well. Do we know who the audience intended? What audience was it? An English audience? I suspect not. I mean, he does say, and he says variously, that the book arose out of letters that he wrote either to, I think, Jonathan Henn or to David Plunkett or both. And he, he says both of those things, that he, he, he wrote correspondence to them, then retrieved some of the correspondence from them and used that. I think he did that to basically write the what is in the first volume. Um. I do not see it being directed um, at um, uh, uh, across the water, in fact. Um, it just doesn't seem to be that sort of uh, trait in it. Mm. Uh, I mean, the, the only time that the English really get a very good mention in it is in the second volume, he has um, fits of... Um, crossness about uh, the various the new fisheries act 
and oh, yeah. the, yes, and the question of weirs being stopped up in the King's Gap, and he keeps coming back page after page to the wonderful act of King Charles the Second, whatever it was in 1662 or something like that, and um, it's a very tiresome part of the book. I'd have is, to say yeah. I, I switched Skip. off. It's yeah. very hard. It's very. It's like it's it's a chore to go through it. Yeah, yeah. But, but he was published. Much... He was published by you know a very um, a very uh, I think it was James Curry and Company uh, who uh, published it, and he was a very big uh, publisher of um, of uh, um, of um, history, geography, folklore, and stuff like that. Uh, so, I mean, he, he had a publisher who was um, was a very good commercial um, business person. Um, but I only saw the book once in an Irish bookshop or catalogue. Was it kind of forgotten, like you said, because even, you know, in the in the kind of the latter books that were, you know, dealing with Irish fly fishing or Irish fishing, it, it wasn't kind of really mentioned. Um, was the R. Walton? But in many oh God, res- I hope he was better than that. <laughs> um. yeah. But was forgotten about in the same, you know, the way Walton was revered so much generation after yeah. generation, century mm. after century. Whereas in kind of typical Irish fashion, yeah. one of our own, we kind of just, you know, chose yeah. to ignore him. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, I do think he had some very laudable ideas. For instance, he said, if you want to make a fly wallet, don't go into Mr. Ettingsell's shop on Merchant's Quay and uh, buy one there. Go to your library, pull out many novels, um, and he goes through about 12 authors. And I think in respect of all of them, uh, I ditched them, particularly Scott, you know, like the Waverley novels, 35 volumes of dribble. And he says, what you do is you, you take out a nice volume, a really nice volume with a nice bit of leather and stuff like that. You tear out all the text. You then stitch up the sides, and that's what you keep your flies in. Yeah. It also suggests he has rather large pockets as well. Yeah. It's a very good <laughs> suggestion, actually, in fairness. Yeah, well, I used to have, um, when, I, when, I was, when I had the disease of fishing um, or an interest in it, I had a couple of mid-19th century fly wallets, which were just like very thick wallets with sort of um, uh, felt and fur in them, you know. Uh, there was no metal boxes. Mm. Yeah, that's that's what they use. Leather was mainly the one. Yeah, I remember reading that. Good idea. <laughs> yeah, and he also, by the way, he was quite good. He mentions, I think, you know, places that have just disappeared. I mean, can you imagine what the Shannon was like at Castle Connell? Yeah, when the when the river was flowing through it, it was mighty, and he mentions. Um, you know, Enright's of Castle Connell. I think I have a reel made by Enright's. Yeah. And he was yeah. very particular about reels. Yeah. Um, uh, the one thing you couldn't have in a reel was was a little ivory. A oh, little on the spindle ivory handle. Up on yeah. the handle. Uh, spin uh, ivory coated on the handle because it would only jam. Basically, that was yeah. his, his pretext with that. It was kind of long, kind of alongside his multiplier thing. He was just in yeah. fear of anything jamming on a reel. Uh, that yeah. was obviously his thing, yeah. Uh, or he said ivory or even wood on it. He just wanted a straight spindle. Yes. Didn't want anything revolving on, the, on it. Yeah, no, no. A pin. But uh, it's very interesting when you talk about what that sh- those Shannon waters must have been like. And he saw, and he talks about the two ways of fishing them and dragging yes. where the cot would go up onto onto poles. They were yeah. all over the place, and and they would put the cot onto a pole, and they would have. Minimum of two rods, or if not three rods, and they would troll over the lies, drag over the lies, as yeah. they called it. Yeah, and it was yeah. basically like hurling, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, yeah. Castle Connell, you know, um, is still a lovely village and has, uh, you know, a beautiful array of uh, Georgian houses, big ones on the banks and some more mm. modest ones uh, elsewhere. And that was all built Um on the beauty of the landscape and the incredible fishing. Yeah. I mean, wow. I mean, I used to read the Fishing Gazette for the 19th and early 20th century. 
and you know just the size of the fish and uh, gentlemen didn't really fish um once the peel came in which is i think they basically considered anything under 10 pounds to be unworthy of mm. paying attention to them you know yeah. yeah i mean when you consider uh the wonderful catch of two or three hundred weight yeah, man has caught a what? What was his best fish? Was it forty eight? Forty eight. Forty eight. Yeah. Yeah, forty eight pounds. Yeah, lovely idea. I mean, I've I've often walked at Castle Connell. I've fished it once or twice, and there's more water in the Liffey, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's just, <laughs> I'd say it must have been something else when it was when it was on its go. It must have been. He talks too of um, back then because. We're talking about places that were like the Clear Lakes. Yeah. Were apparently fantastic. And he talks of big trout in Loch Mask as well. And the biggest he knows of was over 20 pounds. But the funny thing that I liked it there, he mentions a boatman by the name of Jennings who told me of was it, a trout of 60 pounds. He saw it weighed himself, he said. <laughs> yes. I, yes. I, I really think when he's writing that, <laughs> he's sort of saying, yes. "Well, you know, I'm just, I'm just, you know, don't shoot, don't shoot That's the messenger." <laughs> yes, indeed, yes. But I mean, the size of the trout that he mentions in the Clare Lakes. Oh yeah, it's very hard to credit um, that there could be such an enormous amount of trout and trout of such size. Yeah, um, and he does indicate that. Uh, most places were ruined by um, what the stopping of the streams and, and netting by the by traps. the by the traps and yeah. things all over the place. Yeah, he's and that comes a lot all through it. He's dead set against these all over the place, or particularly in the yeah. Clear Lakes. One of the catches, all right, he says it's, it's um, one of his catches on Tadan, I think, was thirteen trout for sixty-five pounds. Yeah, you know. And I think that's the other thing why we would recommend this for people to pick it up is that it gives us that insight into what it was like, isn't it? Mm. You know, like yeah. you mentioned the 48 pounds there, Patrick, you know, the, the, the trout. It, if you And, and it's the detail, like I'll just give people, like I, I love the detail it goes into when he's writing about, um, you know, the people or the landscape. You do really get insights into it. Um, I'll just read a couple of lines here. This is when he's talking about going to Delphi. Which mu yeah. with much difficulty procured a skiff to take me. I did not know where or how far. Became restless, saucy and fretful. Told the men what was true, that they were bad rowers. One of them asked if I'd ever been on the water before. He was much surprised when I told him I had seen more salt water in one day than he had during his life. Seemed to have gained some respect in consequence of this observation. After about three miles rowing, went across and asked where Delphi was. About two miles off. Desired the men take my luggage and leave their oars in the boat. They replied if they did, they would have no account of them on the return. Heartily tired, having come by various conveyances over 50 miles from Galway. Sundown and late, expected dinner to be over. But in this, I was most agreeably deceived. It's just, you really get an insight into Irish life yeah. and culture, aside from the fishing even. like. And you know, the, the wonderful thing is that, um, I mean, I started fishing the... Uh, Delphi about 1981 or something uh, and this was before any of the larger houses and places had been built and it was still the most beautiful place in the spring and the river is just spectacular he talks about the clarity of the water which is true and of course that river um, particularly at the last three or four pools has a very sizable um, uh, population of um, uh, pearl mussels, swan pearl mussels. Mm. You know the the Irish, um, the very large Irish mussel, and it's actually very hard to fish one of those pools without actually catching one of the mussels because they're filter feeding, they have their mm. uh, uh, gills out and whatnot. And the last time I was there, I was with my brother-in-law. And I said, you know, you're going to catch a, on this pool, you're going to catch a mussel. And he did. And we <laughs> carefully put it back, given that it was yeah. probably about 100 years old. Yeah. <laughs> and there's not many rivers. That, no, that there, it's, it's one of the few. It's one of the yeah. few. Yeah. Mm. But it's true. And it, it is very true. And he notes of it there, but it's still the same now. 
of you know how clear the water is running in that in mm. in that stretch of river, which is so unusual for like most let's say Connemara rivers that normally yeah. have that tea stain, but it yeah. really doesn't, you know. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful sand underneath. Uh, mm. I think it's all a washout from the glacial moraine or something like that. And when you look at the names there, he, um, so there's Finlock at the bottom, which is the uh, clear, the bright lake. Then there's Dulock, which is the black lake. And there's, is it Glen Cullen, the one at the Glen top? Glen Cullen is the top lake. Cullen is what? A, a hazel, not hazel. It's, it's hazel or holly. I can't remember yeah. which. Uh, yeah. Holly. The Holly, Holly yeah. the, the Valley of the Holly. Yeah, yeah. You know, De Delphi is also a very interesting place because uh, I had a friend who had the fishing diary of Charles Kendall Bush, who was Lord Chief Justice in about the 1840s and 50s. And he fished in Delphi a lot and um, had amazing descriptions of his fishing, particularly on the river there. And I remember um, uh, he, he had noted at some stage um, a death, a drowning in the river. And I can't remember the, what the circumstances were. And there was a pool um, on that uh, river called the um, Deadmau's Pool, Poland in Amarov. Yeah. Which is an extraordinary pool. It's not fished very much. I don't think it's it's one of the best fishing pools. And the first time I ever really fished there, I threw an enormous fly into the deepest part of the pool and was retrieving it um, using my old, I had a spit cane rod. And all I could see was something large and white. And I, as I looked more closely in what I realized it was, was the open mouth of a very large salmon coming up from my fly. So I did like anybody did, and I immediately jerked the fly out. <laughs> <laughs> but I've never walked past uh, that pool without thinking that there was a story from about 150, 170, 180 years ago that the Lord Chief Justice, when he was fishing, this is the Lord Chief Justice who lived, I think, on... Mespel House on the Grand Canal in Dublin, and for diversion, used to uh, walk up to Hazel Hatch, uh, up almost in Kildare, uh, fishing the Grand Canal. Right. Yeah. And what actually do you know what he was fishing for? Um, it, it, he he was a gentleman, so it was definitely trout. Right. God. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Wow, there were some times. So, yeah. just Patrick, just there before we go, like, I mean, that the whole Ogora book really has had a huge thing on me looking back at the history thing. What, when you look back at the book, what do you think is the most striking part from it for you? Oh, I think it's, I think it's what's lost. I think uh, Shannon, the, the loss of the Shannon, and not, um, uh, saying it shouldn't have happened, but you know what an extraordinary place—the largest, the, lar the the longest river in um, uh, the British Isles, with the most enormous fish and really really wild fishing, which you just can't replicate um, anywhere. Um, that's I, I think it's it's very romantic, um, and. It, in a very, very different way. It's what I also found very attractive about Kingsmill Moor uh, and the Slaney. You know, that yeah. sense of, you know, great days. Paradise lost. Yeah. Exactly. Or as Kingsmill Moor said, uh, uh, apropos of Delphi said, another Eden vanished. Yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's, yeah, no, exactly. And if anybody's got a spare 600 quid sterling, you can get the first edition. I just see it there oh, on right. uh, <laughs> anglebooks.com. Uh, of course, you can, you can get it online, but it's, as you have to read it on the laptop. Yeah, the PDF. You can get download it on yeah, uh, openlibrary.org. So li open mm. And if you put, well, in, you know, put in the search for that there. Um, actually, I just wanted to uh, quote from on um, 
Cockabondu Books, uh, anglebooks.com. Arthur Greenwood uh, from Salmon Trout and Sea Trout, July 1993. I think this was when your uh, edition, uh, Patrick, was it? That was came out. Yep. Uh, yep. He says, what, this is Arthur Greenwood, um, one of the yep. great rarities of uh, Irish angling books, one of the most entertaining works in the entire literature of angling. Despite the technological chasm between O'Gorman's era and our own, there is much that has not changed. All good angling books should instruct and amuse. As long as rivers run, O'Gorman will give entertainment and enlightenment to those who are privileged to read his book and then appreciate therein a man who loved life and angling and can share that with us from bygone halcyon days. He sums it up, sums it up well. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, I know we went on to there. It's, it's interesting because you touched on, you know, it hasn't come up as much or there wasn't too many reprints, you know, or it hasn't featured large. And, mm. So people going back and are mentioned by other anglers. But God, when I, when I read it the first time, I was bowled over by it. So, and now maybe as you said, Dara, it's a it's our forgotten Walton, or and as you said, Patrick, a lot better than that. Yes, well, it is uh, because um, uh, as you'll remember, O'Gorman suggested that one might use a book of Byron's, and of course, Byron had um, nominated Isaac Walton as that quaint old cruel coxcomb, <laughs> and also uh, um, apparently um, established the. Um, saying that uh, uh, you know a rod with a fool in one end and a worm on the other mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> well maybe we should start the campaign to bring back O'Gorman <laughs> yes yeah. it's a brilliant read um, for insights into like we said there the kind of paradise lost of what fishing in Ireland was like in the 1800s so well worth uh, a recommendation and a read so I hope everybody listening got a, a great insight and Patrick thanks again for your insights into it and uh, we'll hopefully speak to you again uh, in the future and tight lines our thanks to Patrick Gageby for joining us on the show don't forget to rate review and follow the Ireland on the Fly podcast on Apple Spotify or wherever you get your podcast from plus you can keep up to date on irelandonthefly.com as well as on Instagram and myself and Tom will be back with another episode about the people and places of fly fishing in Ireland.